Hello there, you Awakening Wonders on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. We really appreciate you, our listeners, and want to bring you more content. We will be delivering a podcast every day, seven days a week. Every single day, you'll get a detailed breakdown of current topics that the mainstream media should be covering. But if they are covering, they're amplifying establishment messages and not telling you the truth. Once a week, we bring you in-depth conversations with guests like Jordan Peterson, RFK Jr., Sam Harris, Vandana Shiva, Gabor Mate, and many more. Now enjoy this episode of Stay Free with Russell Brand. Remember, there's an episode every single day to educate and elevate our consciousness together. Stay free and enjoy the episode. Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining me today for Stay Free with Russell Brand. It's a very special episode. It's Matt Taibbi talking about new revelations from the Twitter files or X-Files, as it now has to be called. It's a brilliant conversation. You can follow Matt Taibbi on Substack or at Racket News. Both of those links are in the description. You can hear us talking about the UK files, which shows how there's all sorts of spying, discrediting and dissenting going on, how there's a formula emerging for setting up these things called NGOs, non-government organisations. They're essentially sock puppets for power that legitimise it. We talk about Elon Musk and his latest case, and we talk about the election integrity partnership, and with a name like that, you know they're stealing elections. This is the kind of conversation that's going to make you feel better educated. You know all the time when you're sort of talking to people and they go, no, no, the system's fine. The legacy media can be trusted. Why don't you vote for the other party if you're not happy with things? Matt Taibbi's going to educate you and make you feel better. Time for us to have a conversation with a genuine, legitimate fantastic journalist, a man with integrity, authenticity, a man whose spirit will inspire you and help you to recognise that no matter how disempowered you feel, no matter how far from truth you may feel, no matter how hard it may be to maintain optimism, there is always hope because there are men like my next guest out there fighting for freedom by acknowledging the complexity of truth. Please welcome to the show Matt Taibbi. Matt, thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks for having me back, Russell. I appreciate it. So what is the significance of the UK files, Matt? What, what, uh, how are we going to make uh, an American uh, media audience concerned with the UK files? What's the function of them and, and why are they globally significant? Well, we've only released a piece of them so far. Um, actually, uh, some of these documents came out uh, some time ago in uh, a couple of Al Jazeera uh, pieces. But for the most part, there's an enormous quantity of Labor Party internal email communications that um, a whistleblower got hold of, and now an investigative journalist named Paul Holden has, uh, and he's been writing for us. And um, look, these documents are really important because the of an organization called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which has become one of the most influential, uh, quote unquote, anti-disinformation organizations in the world. They uh, have been tremendously successful in getting people taken off the internet um, by accusing them of hate speech, um, disinformation, and other offenses. And they've always claimed to be independent. These documents show that they were actually a labor party operation. And um, you know, they're, they're pretty damning, I would say. Why are they damning? Who do they who do they target? Are there recognizable establishment figures uh, from within the British political establishment and even the American political establishment? And would you say that knowing that they are not um, neutral 
uh, or and unfunded that, it, that an agenda can be discerned based on the individuals targeted. So this group, this Center for uh, Countering Digital Hate, um, its origins trace back to a faction within the Labour Party that you're probably familiar with called Labour Together, um, that is uh, most directly allied with uh, Keir Starmer, right? So who's you know the light, you're likely next prime minister over there, uh, and yes, they've they have targeted. Uh, individual politicians, most notably uh, Jeremy Corbyn in in Britain, uh, but also going even further back than that, uh, or farther, I always get that wrong. Um, it, there was a, a, a sort of controversy involving uh, Grant Shapps, remember the Tory MP, uh, who was accused of editing his own Wikipedia pages. Uh, these documents show that that story came uh, from this group, uh, it was later recanted, uh, and so it's it's a group that's dedicated to stopping fake news. But they themselves appear to have trafficked in fake news. So that's that we think is significant. In the United States, we saw them all over the Twitter files because, among other things, they were really really um, intense in trying to get the so-called disinformation dozen removed, which included Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, and they've been recently sued by X slash Twitter uh, because they've uh, been involved in um, accusations that uh, X or Twitter or Elon Musk are all trafficking in hate speech. So uh, they're a pretty significant organization. This new classification of hate speech appears to really be a weapon for control and a successful one because the category of hate speech is clearly one that exists but it's difficult to believe that the sudden interest in protecting people's feelings is motivated by compassion and if it is why are these opaquely funded organizations like the center for countering digital hate that don't explicitly declare what their interests are and what their funding is and what their agenda is and why do they have like sort of um, discernible connections to the political establishment. This is happening, it seems, more and more broadly. Like Ireland appears to be a sort of a piloting nation for these practices, you know, with particularly uh, draconian legislation being introduced and being demanded all the more uh, immediately as a result of the recent uh, riots in Dublin. What? How? How do you think we're going to see this category of hate speech utilised to introduce new censorship? And how is it that that, that is a position that can be defended? Why is it not becoming clear that hate speech is um is is, is not a legitimate concern? Not that hate speech doesn't exist, but that it's being mobilised in this way. Yeah, that it's that it's been appropriated for the wrong ends. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's one thing when, you know, a bunch of college lefties come up to me and they say, we're really concerned about the proliferation of hate speech online. It's another thing when I see an organization quoting the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff and taking money from the Department of Defense and and they're worried about hate speech. Like, I, I don't think so. You know, I think, you know, the, the, the sudden concern with defense and intelligence agencies uh, with this topic. And 
is is very hard to believe. And why is it uh, so significant that they're involved? Well, Ira Glasser, the former head of the ACLU, um, he's the person who's famous for defending the Nazis that, uh, who marked at, marched at Skokie. He once talked about um, why he was against hate speech codes on campuses. And he, he told students and even minority students, he says, the issue isn't the speech. The issue isn't the hate speech. The issue is who's going to decide what is hate speech and who do you think that is, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you get these hate speech codes, it's not going to be you deciding what's hate speech. It's going to be the trustees at the university. And, you know, this was 30 years ago when he was saying that. Um, even then he was saying it's not going to be you deciding. Now it's even worse. Now it's going to be some conglomeration of executive branch uh, groups, defense, intelligence. Do you really want them deciding what hate speech is and, and using that as a way to get things off offline? I, I think that's very suspicious. Before you answer the next question, Matt, I'm going to stop you there. Stop right now. Enough's enough because Awakened Wonders over on YouTube, we need you to click the link in the description and join us over on Rumble because me and Matt are going to start speaking pretty freely now. It's going to get so free that it's the sort of thing that, well, you've, you're listening to this conversation. Dissent is illegal now. Your consciousness is illegal. Your ability to speak freely is their problem. So you're going to have to join us over on Rumble. Download the app if you can, then you'll get notifications every time we make content and we make it all the time. And if you become a supporter by going to Locals, we'd appreciate Appreciate that as well. Stick up me all. See you. Uh, click the link in the description. See you over there. There was a moment after 2008 where uh, a bunch of, you might call them, leftist populist figures and movements emerged. You know, Occupy, really obviously, Occupy Wall Street. And uh, in, in, in Greece, there was the Syriza movement and Podemos in Spain. And although Jeffrey, uh, excuse me, Jeremy Corbyn was a, a lot later, I still feel that this kind of sentiment of anti-establishmentism was fueling that movement after an attempt to make the Labour Party, which is our Democrat Party, Party, more of a centrist and neutered organisation, you know, which obviously began with Tony Blair. And then there was a kind of a backlash against that. So Jeremy Corbyn, it was a significant figure because it felt, felt for a moment, like particularly in 2017, that he might be, uh, that there was a possibility that there'll be an anti, there was a genuine anti-establishment populist running for one of the major parties in the UK. And it was someone from the left, not from the right. So the disparaging and smearing of Jeremy Corbyn was a kind of in, was interesting. And there are people now that just believe that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite and used um, extraordinary attacks uh, and is a homophobe and stuff. Uh, was Jeremy Corbyn someone that was especially and particularly targeted? And if so... What does that tell us about the agenda of groups like the Centre for Countering Digital Hate and hate speech more broadly? What is the uh, function of hate speech? I like what you just said. It's not, um, you know, the control of hate speech. It's who decides what hate speech is. So um, can you tell me how Jeremy Corbyn, who to most people seems like, you know, even if you don't agree with him, a pretty uh, authentic figure. Authentic. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, again... Uh, that question is, is directly on point. When we started working on the Twitter files, one of the things that we didn't understand at first was how come there are so many people who come from the military and sort of counterterrorism um, suddenly involved in content moderation in S Silicon Valley? And 
when we finally started drilling down into organizations like the Global Engagement Center in the United States, um, the Department of Homeland Security had agencies against disinformation. I had one person from one of those agencies telling me that, look, basically, originally these anti-disinformation groups were built to combat propaganda from ISIS and Al-Qaeda. But after the Arab Spring, Occupy, the Tea Party, as you mentioned, Podemos, Syriza, um, you know, Victor Orban's Fidesz party, right? Like the, the Australian far right movements. And then even Bernie Sanders, Trump, Brexit, uh, and then Jeremy Corbyn, I think is a, is a really important example. That whole mission just shifted home, right? They had this huge, basically illegal operation directed overseas at terrorist groups. And they just they just turned it inward, and these people the, the switch was described to me as CT to CP, so it's counterterrorism to counterpopulism, wow. and I think that fully describes what happened here. Like during the entire war on terror, we just told all these military and intelligence groups do whatever you need to do, up including droning people to death um, if that's necessary to stop propaganda reaching you know, the UK and, uh, and, you know, Southern California suburbs. And then those same people got moved on to this other mission. I don't think they can really distinguish between terrorists and legitimate political movements that people like people who vote, they see threats in the same way. And that, that's what's happened is, is that they've, they've turned the war on terror machinery inward on domestic groups. It seems almost too deliciously simple to say that counter-terrorism became counter-populism, but there might be observable symptoms even in the rhetoric of a figure like Hillary Clinton saying we need to deprogram these MAGA extremists, that like the, the language around it might be revealing. And I suppose that it, what it seems like is, is, you know, probably post 2008, but certainly with the advent of the kind of communication that's become subsequently available, it became necessary to invent and utilize counter uh, populist tools because anti-establishmentism is, I suppose, always present, but very difficult to mobilize and organize when it is, you know, when it's not geographical or it's not single issue related. But I suppose now a genuine anti-establishment movement could form. And indeed, they are forming with more success plainly on the right, I suppose, because if you have nationalism, as the defining ideal around which the movement coalesces, whether that's Gert Wilders or your man Javier over there in Argentina. And if indeed there is a broad anti-migration sentiment and we can debate the legitimacy of those feelings and the impact of migration as opposed to something like global corporatism. Uh, but it's, I suppose it's harder to counter a movement that has nationalism and in even ethno-nationalism around which to formulate itself. And I think that Ireland becomes an interesting example for two reasons. One, Matt, that the legislation there seems more overt and frightening than elsewhere, with the police being granted powers, as I understand, to sort of invade people's homes and, uh, you know, uh, seize tech. But 
but also because there are these riots there and also because Ireland is not a colonial superpower. Ireland is an oppressed nation that for years suffered under the kind of tyranny of the British Empire, obviously, that would be, you know, they should be the beneficiaries of this kind of um, compassionate um, and to use a rather lazy word, woke discourse that often undergirds the demand for the implementation of hate legislature. Um, so I suppose what I'm asking them, Matt, is how, um, where you think, it, how you think ethno-nationalism and nationalism might oppose these, these what seem to me to be ultimately globalist and establishment measures, and whether or not it can, this, the, the anti-establishment movement can handle some of the nuances that are um, overridden by making it a, a, a sort of nostalgic and nationalist movement to oppose globalism, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, all these movements... Um a lot of them are beginning to realize that they have something in common in that they're all being targeted by these these same structures. Um, you know, the, the sort of five eyes intelligence partners are, they're, you know, they're monitoring, um, you know, the, the Sanders movement and the DSA in America and free Palestine movements in the same way that they're following uh, Trump, the Boogaloo Boys, you know, we have a new document uh, story coming out this week that shows, um, you know, a sort of DHS connected organization using phony accounts to infiltrate the, the Boogaloo Boys. And so I think a lot of these sort of groups that are on the populist right and populist left, they have they have to realize, and I think they are realizing that they're being lumped together uh, as similarly as sort of threats to the um, established order, and you know they 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 will be targets of technologies and policies and um, strategies that, that are not probably not legal in a lot of countries, uh, and you know they're they're going to have to find their own ways to communicate um, because they're going to be shut out of. Uh, you know the, the bigger platforms that they, they, they will be deamplified um, if they happen to get uh, you know in, into mainstream news. So I think that's important for these groups. They have they have to first show that they're legitimate. They have legitimate political grievances, and secondly, they have to broadcast those as loudly as possible and not be dismayed by what's going to happen to them. With um, these NGOs like CCDH being, it seems, used as tools for various uh, globalist agenda, I, I, I wonder if it takes figures with this, the kind of almost um, unprecedented power of Elon Musk to oppose them, whether that's through his case against Media Matters, which are themselves an interesting organisation with an interesting history and an interesting funding model, and indeed Musk's pretty unique decision to open up Twitter after his acquisition of it to journalists such as yourself. What does it indicate to us, Matt, that it seems to take Elon Musk? What does that tell us about how global power is moving? And does that is that cause for optimism or pessimism does it mean that does it mean that sort of ordinary people aligning is becoming less and less sort of relevant that you sort of almost have to be a tech titan and the world's richest man to be able to sort of stand up against this kind of insidious and invisible power 
Yeah, to, to dent this thing, right? Like that, you know, at minimum, you need a couple of hundred billion dollars, basically. Um, that's that's a little bit depressing. Um, you know, the, the, the overall narrative of this is so interesting, I, I think, Russell, because when the when the Internet arrived, most people viewed it as this amazing, like revolutionary tool that was going to bring together all kinds of people all over the world, uh, like-minded people from you know different countries were going to be able to communicate for the first time easily. Political movements could coalesce more easily, but also like academic ideas, right? Like people were going to innovate more. They were they were going to do more more interesting research. I mean, it was this beautiful, liberating thing. And it also, the internet made it almost impossible for authoritarian countries uh, to have the internet and continue to, um, you know, to lock down their citizenry. So I, we looked at it as an inherently democratizing tool that had some characteristics that lean towards, you know, anarchy a little bit, right? You saw that with the Arab Spring, mm. you know, at the drop of a hat, you know, movements could coalesce and like within a matter of days, you could have four big governments toppled. And I think that was the moment when the, the authorities realized, wow, we have to really get a lockdown on this thing because we, we just can't allow this to happen. We, we are too much at risk. Uh, if the internet is free, and there's a moment in time where that narrative of the of the unfettered free internet started to roll back, and the internet became a tool of social control, which is I think where it is right now. And you know, one of the symptoms of that is that the only you know you, you basically have to be Elon Musk in order to break through the you know, homogenous environment, political environment that's been created on the internet. Um, and even Elon is relatively small potatoes compared to the, you know, the entire rest of the universe. But the, the, the reaction against him is really significant because um, the whole information sort of cartel doesn't work if there's like one link in the chain missing. I think that's that's one of the big reasons why there's been such an intense campaign against him, because if there's one opt out, then there's a place for all kinds of information to still be moving around and, and they can't have that. Yes, I see. There is so much potential. So in his legal battle against Media Matters, is it possible that uh, a victory could be achieved that's so significant that it could have positive repercussions for the rest of us. What is the, what, who is David Brock and why is his history important? You know, in particular, his connections to the Clintons and uh, his involvement maybe in uh, like, you know, some of the stuff that went on in 2016, some of the, the Russiagate stuff I'm guessing is involved in that. And, and also with Media Matters, George Soros, is he some sort of international supervillain? What's, what's going on with these, um, like these uh, figures that appear to be organizing around this sort of this battle between Musk and Media Matters? Well, Sor Soros, I'm not really an expert in, um, but David Brock, uh, like I've been in media a long time. I've covered some really loathsome people. I've like shook the hands of some really loathsome people in my life. Um, and I'm not easily shocked. Uh, he, he's one of the more breathtakingly like, uh, off-putting 
human beings I've ever encountered. I mean, I've never met the man, but just his record is astonishing. If you go back to the 90s, uh, and he wrote, he gleefully wrote about all this in, you know, books that he published. He was basically the hit man for the Republican Party in, uh, in the United States. He was behind media campaigns against everyone uh, from Anita Hill to the Clintons. Uh, he basically organized a, a lot of the uh, campaigns to highlight things like the Lewinsky scandal. Um, and then allegedly he had some kind of religious conversion or politically religious conversion. He admitted all of this uh, in books like Con Confessions of a Political Hitman, I think it was what it was called, and then switched sides. He became the hitman for the blue team. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure when that happened, but he became he created Media Matters pretty early. I guess that was in 2004. But Media Matters didn't become an important political force, I don't think, until the Trump years, um, like a really important one. And what they're accused of here, and I have to stress that it's an accusation, right? Like, you know, for the purpose of a lawsuit, you have to assume that these things are true, you know, just to get past the first part of the suit. But we don't know if it's true, right? But they're accused, basically, of faking... Um, uh, the creation of fringe hate speech and making it look like major advertisers were appearing next to those accounts so that they could then report on that um, and then tell other organizations that it had happened, which led to boycotts of the platform. Now, without commenting on that specific case, I can tell you that that's something that we've seen on the internet, we saw in the Twitter files, more than once, it's sort of fake news is created. The same people who are behind the fake news write about it. Then they get somebody else to react to it. Um, it's sort of the opposite of media, right? Like media is designed to tell you the truth. This is designed to like throw a bunch of crap into the into the um, internet and impact politics that way. And the only defense against that is a free press, but they want to lock that down too. So th these people are very dangerous. Um, hmm. Yeah, that sounds frightening. There's some interesting and, uh, well, I don't know about nefarious figures emerging. And that practice of being able to, in this instance, create what seems like um, a visual affiliation between um, advertisers and fringe groups, extremist groups, right-wing groups. It's an interesting attack. But it seems, yeah, from the moment Elon Musk... I remember that Elon Musk was seen for a while as a kind of uh, techno-eccentric, a Willy Wonka of the cosmos colonizing Mars. I can make cars run on hiccups. Like, he was like, oh, this guy's going to be great. You know, and then suddenly he acquired a social media platform. And it's weird. Like, I've had this sense for a long time, you know, as uh, Mexican folk used to say in California, I didn't cross the line, the line crossed us, that there's just been <laughs> this sort of creeping line of what's sayable and permissible now. And suddenly I found myself in alliance with groups I never thought I would be in alliance with just because to be anti-establishment now requires 
all sorts of new affinities. Like it, it and once I never thought I would find myself having. I didn't think I'd find myself getting on with Tucker Carlson. And now, like with the escalation of events in the Middle East, there are new fractures, new fissures, new fragmentation. It really feels like a time of annihilation. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the new Twitter files and the election integrity? partnership that sounds so sort of bureaucratic and has the word integrity in it and normally a, a sort of diagnostic tool that I've learned in my own short uh, time in journalism is if something's calling itself the trusted news initiative or the friendly cuddly bunny party <laughs> you should probably get yourself a bunker <laughs> and, get, and start stocking up and getting ready to survive oh yeah no as soon as soon now as soon as i see the word trust i just assume the person's lying like um which is not not a healthy reaction but it's kind of an evidence of the orwellian world we live in um yeah michael schellenberger um uh, at public with whom i testified uh in congress la earlier this year and then also again this week um we'll be doing the same thing uh we got hold of a a large new tr uh, trove of documents involving something called the uh, Cyber Threat Initiative League uh, or CTI League. And this is like the precursor organization to that um, in election inte integrity partnership. It, it involves people from the Pentagon, from DHS, from the FBI, there's a woman from the UK who was uh, central in creating this group, but it really lays out in tremendous detail, like what the thinking and strategy of all these anti-disinformation people are. They're talking about creating fake sock puppet accounts to infiltrate groups they don't like. They're saying we're, we're gonna be doing the same things that the bad guys are doing. Um, you know, they're openly talking about, uh, you know, describing Republicans as, as needing reprogramming. Um, and, you know, there's just all kinds of stuff in, in, in these documents that I think are, are, when people see them, you know, the Twitter files were important because they showed, they proved a link between this kind of stuff and official agencies like the FBI and Homeland Security. This, I mean, there are like whole quotes about, well, we need to do this in a quasi-private way because the Department of Defense can't do it legally. And, you know, Department of Homeland Security doesn't have the, the capability. And the Global Engagement Center only has $250 million, so they're not going to be very capable either. So it needs to be done by people like us who aren't officially, um, you know, attached to anybody. And that's kind of the model for how these things work. You see these NGOs that look independent. Behind the scenes, they're working with, you know, intelligence groups and enforcement agencies, and they believe, they really believe that, you know, sort of domestic political movements, like whether it's Trump in America uh, or Corbyn in the UK, that those things are threats in the same way uh, that the, the terrorists are. And we see that in these documents, and it's pretty shocking. Yes. It's interesting how often there are apparently independent organizations that are advocating for ending hate speech or for a fairer, a more just world that are actually 
merely a conduit for power that's, and that becomes discernible through their funding. And then you find sock puppet accounts that are supposed to be legitimate independent individuals, but they too are a conduit for the same power. And it seems like whether or not it's a, a popular or anti-establishment figure emerges from the left-wing space using left-wing rhetoric or the opposing space using the appropriate rhetoric there, that they will be opposed. And it seems now that whatever language is required to legitimise the foreclosure of those groups can immediately be accessed and defined. And our time, it seems to be, I suppose, the power of identity politics, and, and I mention that only because of how it might relate to hate speech, is that it's by its nature divisive. It's divisive not only in terms of ethnographics, but also in terms of time. It indicates that the, the culture moves at a pace where it's pretty clear, I would say, and this is just a guess, that generally I would imagine America is a less racist place than it was 50 years ago and the UK is a less racist place than it was 50, 60 years ago and I would say that of most Western countries and yet there's this feeling that the tension is being amplified and I suppose it's going to, like I watched uh, the sort of uh, the British, I guess right wing, certainly nationalist populist figure, Tommy Robinson yesterday being arrested for his attendance of a pro, essentially a, a pro-Israel march I guess is what it was. Um, and I thought, wow, that's, you know, you, in the end, we're going to have to, the only way I think to form the kind of alliances that are going to be required in order to oppose centralised authoritarianism is by accepting that, you know, like ideas that you sort of simply don't agree with, that there would be communities that are like we are a ethnically defined community whether that's you know like a, 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 an ethnic community of african-americans somewhere in america or communities that are organized around religion or culture or sexual identity or progressivism seems like how else would how else is this tension ever going to be diffused without uh, the, uh, the alternative otherwise is to yield to some centralised authority that's going to, as you said earlier, determine what hate speech is, unperson practitioners of it. I, I don't see how that, the same way as they enter into these wars without giving you a vision of, and this is how we beat Russia eventually and Ukraine joins NATO and it doesn't need to lead to a nuclear war, or this is how we involve Iran in this conflict and it doesn't cause some massive, terrible apocalypse in the Middle East. There's no vision, is there, Matt? There's only sort of attempts to manage, control, con shut down, curtail, a sort of a desperate attempt to continually oppose what seems to be organically happening just as a result of one, total lack of trust in authority, whether it's state or media or corporate, two, the ability to organise differently as uh, as you de as demonstrated by the Arab Spring and even you know, in terms of the corporate space, Napster. You know, there were examples how the online space was going to collapse existing power centres. Independent media collapsing existing media power centres. And to oppose that, these new categories have to be invented to sort of roll back what appears to be the natural, if you can say natural, trajectory of, a, of, a, of more accessibility to comms. So these new ideologies have to be legitimised through 
Yeah, I suppose a, a number of measures, but it seems the one at the moment that's important. Certainly, when you watch coverage of that riot in the Dublin, you see the the you hear the sort of Garda, the the Irish police say, "There's a far right extremist faction in Ireland that we have to shut down." That doesn't make sense in terms of Irish politics or Irish history, or or a figure like Tommy. Yeah, they've they've been oppressed their whole history, uh, or like um you know a figure like Tommy Robinson, uh, with whom I'm sure I would disagree on religion and gender and all sorts of stuff i'm sure but getting arrested as he arrives at a protest so like yeah and you even see it actually matt sorry to go on but in normal legacy media reporting you say like i saw a pundit say the other day on msnbc in order to present prevent fascism you have to vote for the democrats this in this election cycle you can't vote for cornell west or you're voting for trump so they're sort of in a sense fashioning a kind of um tyranny with the aesthetics of progressivism right yeah that's that's exactly what they're doing they're they're leaving you with one one acceptable choice everything else is outside the the, the sort of trust tree and you know you should you, you should be afraid to be seen um in those circles uh, there might be consequences for you to be in be in those places and in order to get there in order to get people to accept those ideas they have to as you say they have to radically change how western people think because we're not if you're old enough especially we're not conditioned to think that thinking that way like i i i certainly would will never be able to accept total curtailment of speech rights mm -hmm. or you know this idea that i can only think a certain way or only vote for a certain person or other otherwise i'm you know, uh, a threat or an enemy. Like, that's not how we've been raised to think. We see this in these documents, by the way. There, there's a there's like a, a Pentagon official who's talking sort of admiringly about the Chinese information landscape, saying that, you know, you have to change the narratives for people way before you get to the point of removing content. Um, the Chinese, the average Chinese citizen does not think that he or she is being censored because they've been conditioned for so long to accept the environment that they're in that for them, it's just, oh, government's making good or bad decisions for us. Um, you know, let's let's just go along with it. Well, you see in America, especially that line you talked about has already moved pretty significantly. Like uh, once upon a time, we would never have even we would never have read news like, um, you know, certain kinds of marches have been declared illegal, uh, like in France, like, you know, the pro-Palestine marches, um, you know, or, or that certain kinds of speech has been declared illegal. We would have thought of, regarded that with shock, hmm. not even that long ago. Now they've slowly conditioned us to this idea that yes, that some things can be illegal, some things can be taken down from the internet without due process. Um, we don't even need to have a criminal case against somebody to, to accuse them of uh, incitement or anything like that. Um, we can take off even the president of the United States without a trial or a lawsuit or anything. And that's just the way it is, and you're going to accept it, and people do accept it. And that's what's so scary about this, is that they, it's not even just the thing that they're doing, it's that they've been so successful in, in changing the way people think about all this stuff uh, through their relentless attention to these issues, um, and that, that's really scary. 
It's curious that the pandemic provided a window, I think, into the ordinary uh, format of powers, movements and functioning. For example, I suppose the point of origin for yielding civil liberties at the advent of the pandemic was human life is sacred and collectively we have a value that means that individually I should give up my individual freedom and I should be willing to take certain medications you know, basically without question for the common good. This idea of the common good, bringing that to the forefront in the pandemic era, I felt intuitively was a risky idea because it's an idea that is mostly removed from common understanding and common discourse. Mostly we live in an atomized society. You live as an individual. The pursuit of your individual pleasure is your primary goal in life. You live through the consuming of products. That's where you get your identity from. We've gone quite far down that road. And economically, those are going to be, I think, untenable ideas as we experience the kind of economic decline that seems to be accelerating and the sort of infrastructural disruption that's taking place in your country and mine. But throughout that period, with that idea in mind, the sanctity of human life, we very quickly accept, they were very quickly, and I say they, the establishment, the media, were very quickly able to normalise measures that in a country like China can just be implemented because of years of the comparable social control. But as people learned that they, that there were a good deal of discrepancies and downright lies throughout it from the origin of the virus to the efficacy of the medications to the consequences of taking those medications to the uh, reliability of the media countermeasures uh, dismissed and, and the efficacy of them denied i think what we're seeing now is a, 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 a in some quarters at least a willingness to disobey so i suppose the function of the media now has to be to continue to create a climate of crisis, even if it's just through the manipulation of semantics that suddenly hate speech, oh my God, there's hate speech, we have to do something about hate speech. It's a... Yeah, do you see where I'm sort of going with it, Matt, that you have to turn that into a kind of ever-present crisis in order to legitimise whatever measures it requires. And I know that um, something that I've seen sort of in my notes here is you were talking about the CTI League. I don't know if you've touched upon that yet. It's part, I think it's part of the revelations that you've just made and maybe forthcoming revelations that you and Schellenberger are, are making. What is the, the CTI League and how does it relate to what I was just saying? The normalisation of measures that would otherwise be seen as egregious. Like you said, you know, certain protests being banned or certain speech being banned. It's not something we would have tolerated, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, again, this is CTI League is is this group that was formed, you know, officially to address COVID misinformation or, and disinformation. But we see in the internal documents that they were actually involved in anything in, uh, related to current events, especially the elections. Um, and you're right, they absolutely like their their raison d'être was the the health emergency. But internally, they were doing everything from following followers of Trump to following free Gaza protests to following the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, and yes, it's, it's the, the, the climate of emergency is, is central to this whole concept, because, you know, if you're raised in, an, in a Western uh, liberal democracy, 
grounded in enlightenment values. The whole idea is that human history had shown us that when power is concentrated too much, uh, the individual's rights are constantly violated. And in order to protect against that, we have to make sure that power is diffuse, mm -hmm. that people have self-determination, that they have participation in their own political destiny. I mean, that's the, the entire idea behind the American system, for instance, right? Uh, but these people want to reverse that. They, they, they openly want to change how we think uh, about th that particular issue. They, they think that focusing on individual rights at the expense of the collective um, is dangerous. And therefore, we have to, you know, change how people think even about everything from hate speech to threat to uh, informed consent in medicine. Um, you know, once doctors cared intensely about informed consent after World War II, after what we found out about happened in the concentration camps, you know, the Nuremberg Accords made it mandatory, like for every civilized country to have informed consent with medicines. But when the COVID vaccine came along, there was a strong public relations campaign like, no, just take the shot and, you know, you don't need to know exactly what the results are, whether there have been side effects or not. Um, that's not your concern. That's our concern, right? And that's totally antithetical to how we think in free societies. But they're, they want to change that. Like that's that's a necessity for them to change that, and and they will, you know, unless there's significant opposition. Bloody hell! Yeah, it's not. Um, it isn't. Um... What do I want to say? Hyperbolic then to refer to it as kind of social engineering, that our behavior is being altered. And you can see how that can be done quite easily just through the very obvious um, introduction of new technology. It just would have been unthinkable that we would have you know, tagged ourselves in the way we do through tech, hand over information in the way we do through, through our phones and stuff. So when you start adding uh, ideological tags to that, that's fascinating. I've got a few questions and comments to pass on from our community. One is, uh, does Matt from Jim Earthsea in our community, does Matt think the silver lining of COVID could be the starting of of a revolution as it's awakened previously idle people. Then uh, this is from testimony. This is uh, like a comment rather than a question. The internet was a CIA project. It's literally designed to conduct surveillance and distribute propaganda. I'd like you to tell me uh, if that's uh, true from testimony or it's just a sort of an on, uh, like a sort of a rumor from the dark edges of the internet. Uh, and what did you think about the comment about co this COVID silver lining as well as that CIA internet comment? Um, you know, on the CIA internet front, I mean, I, look, obviously the internet had defense roots. Uh, I don't know that it was necessarily exactly created specifically with social control in mind. I think it was initially created as a, as a means for uh, factions of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines to communicate with one, one another efficiently. And once they figured out how to do that, um, they realized that it had a, all sorts of other applications. I don't know a whole lot about that history, though, so I should, probably shouldn't comment on it. I will say, though, that when it was introduced, it did have, for a while, you know, a very liberating uh, impact on a lot of places around the world. I mean, I saw this in Russia. I, I, I was there when it was Soviet, and then I was there when it was, uh, you know, post-Soviet, and the Internet was really important in teaching Russians 
um, all these new values. So, um, and as for COVID being the start of a, a revolution, I, I think you did see that there were an awful lot of people um, around the world who who became um, angry at the system in new ways because of uh, what happened during the pandemic. They became mistrustful of uh, authority. And we're talking about like ordinary small town, like old ladies and moms who don't care about politics. Um, now they do. Right. And that's interesting. I, I hope that energy, you know, goes somewhere because I, I frankly find this terrifying. Like uh, one of the things we see in these documents, there's a ton of these sort of corporate marketing types who are involved in these projects and they're applying technologies that they use to monitor how people feel about their products. Like, does this, they use algorithms to analyze, does this social media post make people feel good or bad about software X, right? Now they're applying that to how people feel about their governments, how people feel about government policies, and they're dividing everything into these binary categories, friend, foe, positive, negative, um, you know, with us, against us. Again, that's totally antithetical to what we think of in, in a nor, uh, you know, traditionally democratic society. We think, well, there's a lot of us with lots of different ideas, and collectively we all get somewhere really cool together. Uh, they do not think that way at all. They think there's one North Star truth, and everybody who's on the other side of that is wrong and needs to be suppressed. And that's, to me, that's the beginning of like authoritarianism for real. And, and, and that's scary as hell. Yeah, for authoritarianism and sort of at least one definition of fascism, you know, the, the state corporate corporations and media coming together. In Lee Fang's piece about Moderna, which I obviously paid a special interest to because I was in it, it showed like how yet another NGO, I think they were called something like the PGA, have been set up and uh, how the Moderna have been employing former FBI agents or at least FBI operatives and how Moderna are spending a lot of money observing online uh, online dissent and are looking to control shadow back like i can't believe that a company that didn't exist a couple of years ago are targeting dissenters online we and have uh, the compliance of the government have the compliance of social media sites that again and obviously something that's affecting me personally is an indication that this is escalating i suppose because it has the capacity to escalate into inconceivable territory now doesn't it matt oh absolutely and one of the scary things about that sort of moderna piece is um look the people who do this kind of work the anti-disinformation work a lot of them don't know anything about anything except what they do but they have no problem whatsoever deciding that phdx is wrong about the vaccine or wrong about this side effect, while health official Y is absolutely right, and so they have they have these sort of prepackaged ideas about things. They they have no specific expertise in anything, but they rely entirely on this idea that, um, well, Moderna is let's just say they're an officially sanctioned partner in the vaccination effort, so. They're right. 
and then critics of them are wrong. Again, it's just that they're, they're creating these dichotomies and life isn't like that. Like in journalism, we, we're always trained to think of things as well. Typically, there's a little bit of right on all sides of the equation, right? Like people, we never really, we rarely see um, pure 100% right and pure 100% wrong. We, it's always a non, like a mishmash of things. And uh, they don't see it that way. They, they, it's just a whole bunch of people who don't have any, any real knowledge except about this technology and about these, this, this sort of expertise um, deciding all kinds of questions they have no business deciding for people. Like that's, that's the thing that's terrifying to me. Power, even energy, requires polarity. And you talked about the need for diffuse power models in order to have uh, democracy, autonomy, individual freedom. So I can see how these, these emergent dichotomies are ways to centralize power, that it's beneficial to create oppositionism in order to centralize power, almost on the level of physics. Got another question here for you from Jamie Jam in our community. With all of the censorship laws being enacted, DSA and others, including in Australia, how far do you think things will go until there's a pushback from people? Will masses of people be charged, tried, imprisoned for years until people push back against it? Do you think it's going to play out like the McCarthy era? That's from Jamie Jam, Matt. That's a great question, uh, Jamie. I don't know. I mean, I would hope that if that uh, you know, if there's going to be a confrontation like that, I would think it would be in the United States because we have the we have a very unique tradition with speech in this country, uh, and it's something that was taught to all of us at a very young age, like. No, Nobody's allowed to tell you what to think or do. Like you have the right to your own opinions. That's the very first thing, right? You're guaranteed as, as an American citizen. Um, the, the right not only to have an opinion, but to, but to petition the government for a redress of whatever your complaints are. Um, so if it's going to happen, I would think it would happen here. But what I'm seeing recently, especially, is that there's this incredible apathy um, and pessimism and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know where that comes from, uh, but it's, it's really frightening. But I don't think, I, I, I always feel optimistic about people in general. I just, I, I think that even in the worst situations, they just will, will not put up with things endlessly. I don't know how you feel about this, Russell, but like even my experience watching Russians, they, they put up with an awful lot for an awful long time. And eventually they just said, you know, screw this. And I, I, I think that's going to happen with this stuff eventually. But whether that's going to be now or in 30 years, that's the question. Sometimes I feel even when there are uh, protests that spill into riots, there is an indication that there's a sublimated energy that's just waiting to be released. I first noticed it when in the, you know, I'd always gone to protest when I was like younger for like the Dockers Union in Liverpool. I was, I ended up there by mistake actually, just because I was out and it was happening. I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And then May Day, sort of socialist protests in the UK. And I used to enjoy that kind of stuff. And then 
like in like uh, I think it was 2011 in the UK, a man was murdered in police custody in London, and it sparked first local riots, then riots across London that led, of course, to sort of looting and stuff, and then across the whole nation there were riots in sort of disparate riots across cities. And I thought, what is this underlying energy that's been released by the the ignition? of this event and of course it, the, the, its expression was diffuse and of, you know, and, and of course th- you know people were stealing you know sneakers and phones and stuff like that might you you know but I felt that what was underneath it was a kind of anger and a dissatisfaction and even the nihilistic expression of it was an indication that uh, of a culture and a society that had lost its way and once again Matt and this is you know getting on for 15 years ago that what was interesting is the way the judiciary, then under soon-to-be Prime Minister Keir Starmer, just responded. Then people were on trial like the next day. They were arresting people en masse. They had courts running through the night. There were people getting, like, long prison sentences for sort of stealing, like, bottles of water. It was like the system just fired up to go, we do not do this. We do not have spontaneous uprising. Because it's, yeah, like, the what we all know is is, you know, to sort of semi-quote Gandhi, is like, you know, a few million British people cannot control a billion Indians if those Indians refuse to cooperate. And because we are so disparate, distracted, and like you say, the apathy that's engendered, I think, by losing tradition, losing connection to family, losing connection to God or highest ideal or whatever you want to call God, the God principle, you see, like people don't have it in them anymore. But you're right, it can lay dormant even for decades, like your example in Russia. And one once it goes, that's it. Then it sort of it, it cannot be stopped, and then the negotiation starts. How do we get these people back in line? How do we get them back in some sort of paddock? You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a there's a point at which the they can't just put everybody in in jail, right? Like they 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 can't punish everybody when it gets when it gets to the point where people just will not go to work or they will not go along. Um, you know that that that's when you have what happened in the late '80s with the collapse of the wall, and uh, that's when you had the, you know the Arab Spring happened pretty quickly, and that's because those countries there was an enormous amount of discontent that was simmering. Didn't take much, right? Uh, I think what people missed about uh, episodes like Brexit, um, you know, the election of Donald Trump. Uh, the rise of Corbyn also in the UK, but also all those populist moments that you mentioned in, in uh, movements in Europe, you know, Cerezo Podemos, those are all symptoms of people being deeply pissed off. And sometimes they don't even know why. I mean, I remember interviewing people at Trump events and I would ask them like, why are, so why, why this guy? Why, why would you vote for this guy? I'm like, I don't know. He's not a politician. Like, so what do you want out of this? And they're just like, I just want them all to suffer. You know I mean? They would say crazy things like that, but that's, that's out there. That's out there in big numbers. Right. And no amount of covering it up is going to make it go away. So yeah, I think it'll, it'll eventually find its expression, hopefully in a positive way. Cool. Matt Taby, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for answering questions from our community as well as from me. I always feel better educated and more optimistic after I speak to you. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you, Russell.
Thank you very much, Matt Taibbi, as always. And of course, if you want to ask questions to our guests, become an awakened wonder. You can find Matt's work on Substack at racket. Well, www. Do we still say that in 2023? www.racket.news. Next week, we've got Steve Kirsch coming on the show talking to us about vaccines, sudden death, Fauci. He's even willing to put $100,000 on the line for a debate about COVID vaccine safety. And I'll find out what MIT means by then as well. Join us next week, not for more of the same, but for more of the different. Until then, if you can, stay free.